Go ahead and um, turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Titus. We're continuing our series in the book of Titus where we've been the last number of weeks. I am so thankful uh, for this and the opportunity to go through this. And, uh, and this morning I'm excited and uh, just so grateful to bring the word of God to all of us this morning. Well, you've turned your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We'll read that there in just a moment. Uh, to begin with this morning, can I just poll us as a congregation? I'd like to just get a poll of everybody here in the room uh, to, so that we are well aware, uh, just some, some things together, all right? And, uh, and just this morning, just not way to embarrass anybody, but just out of uh, honesty this morning, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have said and you confess the Lord Jesus Christ with your mouth, you have believed him in your heart, you are walking as a Christ follower, you've given your life to Jesus, you've been born again. Can you raise your hand? Can I see that this morning? Hold it up high. Hold it up high. Amen. Amen. Put your hands down. Now, I got another question for you. How many of you have ever been sinned against or have sinned against someone? Can I see your hand? All right, every hand as well. Here's the fact in life, all of us are sinners saved by what? Grace. We're sinners saved by grace. And that's important because the Bible teaches us when we sin against God, there is always collateral damage. I don't know about you and uh, your own life and your own family. I, I know we can all bear this out, that sin has consequences. Sin wreaks havoc in our lives. Sin uh, separates us from God and it hinders our relationship with one another. And, and just the other week, I was reminded of this as I was working around the house. I'd been uh, building something in my shop recently with some two-by-fours, and I had stored some of them in my basement, and I had piled it up. And, and so I went downstairs to go grab a two-by-four for a project I was working on, and I just kind of grabbed underneath it like this and, like, scooped it up. And, and all of a sudden, as soon as I did that, I, I knew I had done something wrong. I knew I should have grabbed the gloves. I, I knew it. And I pulled my hand up like this and I looked. And right there on the tip of my finger was about the tiniest splinter in the world. But it caused so much pain in my body. I, I got upstairs. I said, Jessica, where in the world are the needles? Help me. You know, she's shining the light and we're looking and we're trying to, I had to start digging that thing out. And, and thankfully, how many of you have ever had a splinter? How many of you know how painful that is? And I tell you, when that happened in my mind's eye, I instantly went back to a moment in my life when I was a sophomore at the Wilds Christian Camp. I have told this story before. Some of you are new, haven't heard it. And uh, I was there at camp that summer working in junior boot camp. And junior boot camp was a tiny little cabin, and it was walled with that old 70s, 60s, 70s paneling. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? And all the bunks were laid up against the wall. And every morning before you left, you had to make your bed. And so I had this comforter, and, and that morning I was just getting ready. Everybody's trying, I'm trying to get eight junior boot campers packed out of that room to go. And, and so I'm just making my bed, and I take my comforter, and I, I do this number to go put it uh, behind the bed. And uh, as soon as I did that, my fingernail came in contact with a very, very large, might have been a two-by-four piece of uh, paneling that was cracked on the wall and it shoved, no kidding, a half-inch splinter all the way down to the quick of my finger. Ouch. Ouch. Went to the nurse's station. They said, what's the problem? I said, right here. So what does she do? She starts pulling and it snapped. It's under my finger. 
You know what she did? She handed me a surgical needle and she said, here it is, try and get to work at it. I was like, you don't have anything better? Like, like I'm supposed to counsel today? Like, you don't got anything? No, here's your surgical needle. I hope it comes out. Like, I have faced injury in my life in different moments. I don't know if I've had any worse pain than that. And I've told you this story. I, I spent the rest of the week of camp, literally the next two, three days, digging on the splinter underneath the quick of my finger. And I'm just telling you, it was a tiny thing, but it caused incredible pain. You know, the reality is this. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs Verse 18, that a spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear. We all go through things in life where we deal with difficult, hurtful, painful seasons. I don't know what you want to call it. Some of us call it an offense. Some of us call it a misunderstanding. Some of us call it hurt. Some of us call it wrong or injuring. But, but, but we all, here's the thing, if, if, if you walk any length of days on this earth, you will be hurt or you will hurt someone else. The Bible says that we are sinners. This is not, we don't do bad things because we sin. We sin because that's our nature. It's our condition. This, we are living in a world that is under a curse and being lived in this world under this curse and the devastation of sin. We have all been wrong and we have all been injured and we have all sinned against or been sinned by someone and I know you can look back in your life and you can find moments that that was really painful and that it really hurt. Maybe it came at the result of a spouse or a child. Maybe it was an employer or a doctor. Maybe it was somebody at your school or, or maybe it was another brother and sister in Christ. And what did they do? How did they hurt you? Was it something they did or was it something they said? Was it abuse? Was it betrayal? Was it lying about you? Was it abandoning you? Was it cheating on you? Was it just letting you down and, 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 and your expectations and that they disappointed you? But here's the thing. All of those things are incredibly painful. And I'm sure this morning, if we go around the room, we could all share of moments in our life where we have either been at the receiving end of deep hurt or we as well have given deep hurt without realizing it. The Bible says in Hebrews that see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is an admonition to the church. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Let no bitterness, the Bible says, spring up and cause trouble and thereby many be defiled. God's grace is His unmerited favor. It's God's grace and disposition toward wicked sinners like you and me. You see, it is God's mercy that keeps us from what we deserve. And it is God's grace that gives us that which we do not deserve. And the good news of the gospel is this, not only that Jesus has saved us, but that Jesus sanctifies us. So if you've come in your life to experience the grace that is in the Lord Jesus, He not only has saved you from the wrath that is to come, but the Bible promises that he begins to change your life from the inside out right here, right now. And that's good news. Last week, Tim shared a powerful message to us on the importance of intergenerational ministry. And in it, he challenged us that a healthy church will be marked by a healthy doctrine and it will overflow in our life 
in all these ways. If you look down your Bible and see chapter 2 of the book of Titus, 1 through 10, it outlines for young and old men and women the way that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way that a sound, healthy doctrine will change our life. It'll overflow. It'll be evident in our life. And so you can know the spiritual health of another by looking at that passage and examining ourselves to it. Because if the gospel is bearing witness in our life, then these things will be a reality in our life. And the connection between what Tim preached last week and we're on that this morning is the very end of verse 10. The Bible says, but notice, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Do you see those words there? That in everything. So this morning, as we're going to talk about the grace of God, the connection in all of these things is that verse. It is so that in everything, you and I, as Christ followers, may adorn the gospel, the doctrine of God, our Savior. You remember Paul is talking to some people in Crete that are living in a very Cretan culture, and the society that they are in is marked by this. It is marked by liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul says, hang on a second. As a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, your life, my life should look different. Our life should look different than the world around us. You and I, in our actions and by our words and in our life, should be adorning, adoring the doctrine of God, our Savior. The, the, the word there, adorn, is the, is the picture of jewelry. It's the picture of a necklace. How many of you ladies are wearing a necklace this morning where you have jewelry on? Can I see your hand? So, so why do you wear jewelry? It's, it's, uh, it's not because you're lacking anything, Right? It's because you're adoring something. You're, you're, you're making these pieces of jewelry uh, suitable to who you are and what you're wearing. And, and there is jewelry that is always suitable for the occasion, right? It, it adores the person wearing it. If one of you ladies were to walk in here this morning and, and like wear the crown like Queen Victoria wore the crown, you'd have a whole bunch of weird looks. Because you're, because although you may be a great person and beautiful, that crown does not adore you in this moment. It's not fitting, right? It, it's not appropriate. And the fact is, Paul is saying, hey, there are appropriate things that we do that adore the gospel. You know what that is? It's humility. It's a holy life. It's unselfishness. It's kindness. It's forgiveness. And when... God's people are adorned with those things. It draws even more excellence to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to live lives that are worthy, the Bible says, of the gospel. So you've opened your Bible to Titus chapter 2. Will you stand this morning as we read from this passage together? Titus chapter 2, pick up with me beginning in verse 11. The Bible says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This morning, I want to share a message to you 
If you're taking notes, the title of the message is this, The Benefits of Grace. The Benefits of Grace. Would you pray? Lord, again, we just bow, recognizing that, Lord, in this moment, we need you to speak. We pray that, God, your spirit would speak to every heart here today. Lord, you are the great shepherd of your church. Your spirit is our teacher. And so, Lord, as we open up your word, help me clearly to teach your word. And that, Lord, together we would all respond to your word. And, God, that we walk in unity as a church. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. You can be seated. The Bible is talking about here in in Titus 2, the benefits of grace. There's three of them. Let me give them to you this morning. The first is this. Grace delivers us. The Bible says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Uh, that, that word there at the beginning of verse 11, four, is this connection. It, it, it's highlighting the behaviors of our life in verses 1 through 10. And it's talking about the theological underpinning for it. And it's using this connection that, 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 that this is a logical connection. Our, our life is living out the gospel of what we believe. And the Bible says, for the grace of God has appeared. What is grace? What is grace? Do you know what grace is? It's very simply God's unmerited favor. Can you say that with me this morning? God's unmerited favor. Turn to your neighbor and tell him what grace is. It's God's unmerited favor. And someone tell me, notice, where is this grace found? The Bible tells us in verse 11, where is it found? For the grace of God has what? It's appeared. So someone tell me, where did it appear? Where is the grace of God found? It's found in Jesus Christ. John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, the Bible says, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is where grace appeared. And grace appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. And once again, the greatest news in all the world is that sinful people like you and I can have a right relationship with God. Why? Because of His grace. You see, in the Gospels, we discover that Jesus is God's son who comes to seek and to save that which is lost. So why was it that God had to seek us out? Why was it that God had to come down and reach down? Anyone know? Why couldn't we reach up? Huh? I heard it. It's the word sin. That's not a popular word today. You're not going to find that on the... uh, uh, That's not going to be a politically correct word. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's our condition. Some of us think the bad things we do is what makes us sin. So if I commit adultery, if I steal, if I lie, if I murder, if I disobey, now I have sinned. No, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we do all of those things because in our condition, we are sinners. Sin is not just the bad things I do. It is my condition apart from Jesus Christ. I didn't choose to be a sinner. I was born that way. So here's the thing. Those of you who, when we lie, we do not lie. We're not a liar because we lie. We we're lie because we're liars. That's, that's in our deep sin nature. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians, Paul says, and you, because you were in your sin, the Bible says, and you were dead in your trespasses. Here's the reality. You and I cannot reach up to God 
if it were not apart from his grace that steps down and reaches to us. Hear me very closely this morning. Do you see the connection there? There are so many world religions today that are telling people that they have the ability to reach up to God, either by their good works or something they do or the things that they don't do or by man-made traditions. And the fact is, there is nothing we can do to reach up to God apart from in his loving mercy, he reaches down to save us, and that is grace. So notice, the grace of God has appeared. Where is it found? It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is you and I don't realize how in need of God's grace we are. We go in moments in life and we think we have it. We don't realize how much we are in need of God's grace. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Grace, notice, grace delivers us. It comes to save us. And so Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, comes. He saves us. He brings us a rescue. He brings us salvation. And there's good news in that. And in that, notice in doing, Jesus, notice in, in verse 12, he sets up this school of divine grace. Jesus saves us by his grace. So first we see that first grace delivers us. But secondly, grace teaches us. Uh, grace teaches us some things. Notice there in verse 12, you'll see them together. Verse 12, training us, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice the, the grace of God, the benefit of God's grace is that God not only takes us in our sinful condition and he delivers us from our sin and he saves us, but he sets us on this new path. He gives us this new life. He, he, he indwells us by his spirit and now we're headed to a new direction and the spirit of God, notice what he does. He teaches us how to live. And there's two things. We're to renounce some things in our life and we're to live in a certain way. And notice in verse 12, notice what are we to renounce? We're to renounce ungodliness. It's this idea of being polluted by sin. You and I have been tainted by sin. Someone who's walking in ungodliness is living a godless life. They're living as if God is not a part of the equation. They're living independently of God. It's what was happening in the children of Israel in, in Isaiah and in, in Jeremiah, the prophet's day. You remember what God comes to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, the people are false and the people have forgotten me. What was the problem? They were beginning to live their lives as an assembly, as in a congregation, as if God doesn't exist. They were living godlessly and they were not following after the Lord. And so God comes to those people and he, he, he challenges them through the prophet. Here's the thing, you can't be filled with the Spirit of God when you're filled with your own pride. And to say you are is what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. One theologian, he describes it this way, he says, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus living incarnate. You see, the Bible tells me that I am to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and that in place of that, notice in verse 12, end of verse 12, I am to live for something. You and I have not just died to our sin to remain in that condition. God saved us to live for something. 
Man, when will the church wake up and realize we've been called to live for something? There's so much talk in the church today about dying to sin, dying to self, dying to sin, dying to self. But how are you living the Christ life? How are you living for Jesus? And notice he says it at the end of verse 12. We are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Every one of those things are important. Why? Because notice verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us. He gave himself for us, notice, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify to himself a people for his own possession. That word there that he has redeemed us, the word redeem is the idea, it's the picture of slavery. And that before Christ, you and I were in bondage to our sin. We were in slaves to sin. We, the, the master of our life was our sinful flesh and we were in bondage to that. But because of Jesus redeeming us, he has paid the price. He's bought us. With what? With his own life. And he saved us. And now we get this opportunity to live for the one who is good. Who is kind. He's the best master of our life. But there are some who will remain in a master of sin because they will not yield to Jesus. You see, the Bible tells very clearly that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to what? The humble. I heard it this past week at Refresh. The only difference between a humble man and a proud man is that the humble man knows that he's proud. (laughs) That's the only difference. And if we don't have humility then we can't follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't have humility, then we cannot receive God's grace into our life. Jesus wants us to deny ungodliness. He wants his church to deny worldly passions. Why? Because he's come to deliver us from it. We're not to live in that anymore. And I don't know how you've come into this morning. I just know it's been a long week. Anybody else can attest to the fact it's been a long week? And I wonder how many of us come into the worship center this morning and we're tainted. We're polluted by our own passions and ungodliness. My friend, Jesus died to redeem us from those things. Jesus died to set his church free from those things so that they can live rightly. You see what the Bible's calling us to in verse 12? The Bible is calling us to ditch our brokenness. And in ditching our brokenness, we're to come to Jesus and to learn a right relationship, not just with him, but one that flows out into everyone else. And that's where real life is found. It's found in coming to Jesus and having him restore and redeem and reconcile and and make new and right who you are before him and who you are among his people, and who you are in the deepest recesses of yourselves. Do you see, notice those three words, they're all describing a relationship. It's talking about three different kinds of relationship. Notice the first, that when we come to Jesus, it corrects our relationship with ourselves. We're, we're able to live self-controlled, the Bible says. Secondly, it restores our relationship with others. Now we can live upright lives before other people. And finally, it's corrected your sin between you and a holy God so that now you can be godly. Does not mean sinless. 
but it means you're living a God-honoring life. God calls us to live rightly. And if we allow sin to fester in our heart, if we allow a root of bitterness to get a growing foothold in our life, it defiles many people. I wrestled this week, all week long, how to say what I'm about to say to you. Not everything's okay. Not everything's okay. The Bible tells us in the book of James that if we all stumble in many ways, that we do stumble in many ways. How many can lift a hand to that? And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. There's no perfect people here. God saved us to be conduits of His grace. And the grace changes the way we live. The book of Ephesians tells us how are we to live. We're to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. How? How are we to do it? What does this look like played out in the life of God's people? Humility. Gentleness. Patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager, the Bible says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Listen to me closely this morning. Unity does not mean we're unanimous, but unity does mean that we show deference, grace. It's for accepting differences. Grace is not trying to eliminate the differences. Grace is not trying to make people agree on the differences. Grace is certainly not accusing people or a group of people of things that are unfounded. There's a vast difference. Hear me. There's a vast difference between expressing concern and showing criticism. We need God's grace. Augustine said it this way. One of the early church fathers. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. What does he say by that? In the essence of the unification things, our doctrine, the things that unify us as a people, we're unified in gospel, we're unified in doctrine, but there's a lot of things that everybody is just not going to see eye to eye on, and that's okay. But in those things, we show liberty, we show deference. My friend, I know we're living in a world today that doesn't show deference, but God's called the church to live differently. He's called us to live with grace, and in all things, love. In all things love. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here's the thing. All of us in this church have been blessed by God experiencing such a profound unity. I'm telling you, man, I go places and talk to other pastors. And I come back saying, Lord, thank you for the privilege to pastor here. It's not a perfect people. We all know that, don't we? This is not a perfect place. But if we love the Lord, we'll be unified. And we're eager to maintain the unity. Here's the thing. I've been working in my shop recently. I got a table saw. I have unity in my hand right now. Praise Jesus. I sure don't want to do anything that would sever the unity in my hand unnecessarily, would I? Anybody? No? 
Certainly not. Why? Because it's something, here's, hear me closely. Unity in the church is something that we cannot create. Jesus has. He's actually already done it. <laughs> He's reconciled people that were enemies of him. He's taken people like in the book of Acts and Paul, who was a persecutor of a church, and he's brought unity into the body of Christ through his saving grace. Amen. Like God's created the unity, but we're called to maintain it, and we're called to walk a certain way, and by the way we live, and by the things we say, it matters. So what does this require us to do in this moment as a church? It requires us to speak truth in love. And that as we speak truth in love, every one of us together grow up into Him who is the head. Walking in truth and love is not this tightrope act of trying to balance the two. They're one in the same thing. Jesus was full of grace and truth. 1 Corinthians says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And one of the greatest tragedies, and may it never be said, that God's people tolerate all kinds of gossip, all kinds of backbiting, all kinds of division. Why? Because those things are not pleasing to the Lord. The Bible says clearly in Proverbs, there are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven abomination. What's the first one? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, the last one, the one who sows discord among brothers. Listen, may God's grace help us to do what is right. May God's grace help us to do what is right. And I'm so thankful to be in a church where so many people care. That's not said in a lot of churches. So let me just say, it's great to be in a church where a lot of people care. And concern is great. But criticism is not right. Once again, what do we need? We need grace. We need grace. We need to give grace because we've received grace. God's grace delivers us. God's grace teaches us. But finally notice, God's grace instills in us hope. Verse 13, waiting waiting for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify unto himself a people of his own possessions who were zealous for good works. You see, God wants you and I as his followers to live our lives in a right way because we are called by God to be people to do his good pleasure. You see, it's, it's, it's hard when you're hurt to move forward. Anybody bear witness to that? But that's why we need grace. You see, it's the grace of what God's done and it's the grace of what God will do that inspires us to keep on keeping on. So when the Bible says, hey, brothers, don't lose heart. It means don't be discouraged. Because we're all sinners saved by God's grace and God is changing us every day of our life. And where we're at as a church can be a sanctifying moment for our church if we let it. But will you let it? You see, we're a body made up of not one member, but a bunch of members. And Jesus is the head and Jesus wants His church to be unified. And so will you, not only as a person who has received the greatest act of grace you've ever been shown, 
Would you be willing to extend that to someone else in our fellowship? You see, grace appeared in the past tense, verse 11, but notice verse 13. Grace is appearing. What is it saying? Jesus appeared once in the incarnation and He brought grace to us. But one day, the Bible says, He is appearing again. (laughs) And He will come back. And the first time He came in grace, the second time He's coming in glory. And He came in grace so that we can receive Him in glory in a right way. Because glory is a fearful thing. I mean, you just look in the Old Testament, the way that everything was set up there. Remember on the Day of Atonement, the priest representing the people had to go into the Holy of Holies. You remember that? And tradition was, they, they, they tied a rope to his ankles and bells on the bottoms of his, his sash or whatever it was there. Why? Because if the bells stopped, God didn't receive that well. And they drag him out. Because God's glory... Remember Moses? He says, God, I want to see your glory. Moses, God says, Moses, you you can see the backside. You can't see the whole thing. God dwells in unapproachable light. He dwells in unapproachable light. and, and, And the glory of God is a weighty thing. It's a serious thing. God says, the Bible teaches us that God is a consuming fire. And one day, the fire of God will try our life in the weight of His glory. I was walking this week, listening to the Bible, and Psalm 39 says, When you discipline a man with rebukes of sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. You see, God's come in grace so that He will come again in glory. And Paul tells Titus to a church that was facing challenges, he said, declare these things in verse 15, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Psalm 39 said it earlier. So now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Guys, we're to be a people zealous for good works. Hating evil, passionate for good. God has saved us for something. And the Bible's clear God does everything in our life for something. I tell you, God never does anything arbitrarily to, but He always does everything for. This past Thursday, we went with some to gather for a day of refreshment. We were given these prayer guides. I want you to take it out right here. This morning, we've made one available for every member in our church. If you want one, you're watching online, we can get you a copy of this. We gave one in every chair because this is not for your neighbor. This is for you. It's for me. It's for me. I'm going to read a verse to you. First John tells us, Brothers, this is the message we've heard from him. And we proclaim to you, 1 John verse 1, verse 5, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Amen. And to cleanse us, notice there, from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In chapter 2, it continues, whoever says he walks in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Friends, God's saved the church to look radically different. We're to be a people who admit our sins and run to the grace of Jesus. And it's in finding God's forgiveness we are able to extend that to one another. So my question as we end this morning is this, are you willing to get honest with God? Someone has said this on Thursday, confession is telling the truth about ourselves. Would we be a people that stop deceiving and in looking into the perfect mirror of God's word, allow God's word to examine our heart, allow God's word to examine our words, our actions. And be no longer hearers that turn away, but a doer of God's truth. You know, we look back in the history of the Bible, we discover that sin has consequences and it affects many things. The sin of one man eating from a forbidden tree brought death to a human race. The faithless voices of ten impacted an entire generation in the wilderness. The children of Israel were defeated at Ai because they had a naked in the camp. The assembly in Corinth learned that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You just mark it down and assemblies will be hindered by what? Sin. How about you? And I'll just tell you this clearly. As your pastor, I don't want to be working against God here. Anybody? <laughs> I want to be working with Him. But sin hinders God's blessing in our life. Sin hinders God's blessing in the center. So what does that mean for each of us this morning? It means this. Titus is telling us in chapter 2 that God is ready to forgive. The grace of God's appeared. God's open and ready. He's ready. And it's available to everyone. But it's God's grace that allows us to deal with our sin. It's God's grace that allows us to find freedom in forgiveness with God and one another. It's God's forgiveness that allows us to be reconciled. I'll tell you, a number of weeks as your pastor, I had a dear brother come to me and Share some things with me. And I'm just so thankful that as a church we can extend God's forgiveness and grace to one another. That's who we're supposed to be. And forgiveness leads to reconciliation. I'll leave you with the words of John Stott. He says, if we can restore to full and immediate fellowship with ourselves a sinning an unrepentant brother, we reveal not the depth of our love, but its shallowness. For we are doing what is not for his highest good. Forgiveness which bypasses the need for repentance issues not from love, but sentimentality. 
So the, 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 the invitation this morning is between every one of us and our God. Lord, is there anything in my life that is hindering me to you? And the Bible calls us to have a conscience void against offense to God and others. And so, Lord, is there something in my life that is hindering me and another brother or sister? God's grace calls us to be cleansed. God's grace calls us to be reconciled. So I'm going to invite Jessica to come and in this moment of invitation, here's the prayer. Would you pray the prayer of the psalmist? Would you take prayer part in the prayer of the psalmist? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Bow your heads with me this morning.